Last season, we explored two topics that are inextricably linked to expansion, the topic of this episode. The first is market size. One thing we're seeing in African markets is that they are wide, but not yet as deep as they could be. That's the subtext Osurumen Osamui from season one, episode five. People might look at Nigeria and see a country with two thirds America's population, but with its 190 million people, like Nigeria, produces a GDP just shy of Boston, which has only 4.6 million people. The other topic was venture capital, and in particular, VC investors' pursuit of scale. So generally speaking, we're looking for very strong teams who are after very large markets in the African context. That's Ido Sum, a partner at the venture capital firm TLCom Capital from season one, episode seven. Or in other words, companies that are up for solving large scale African problems typically in more than one African market with very few uh, exceptions, maybe in regards to Nigeria, and using technology for scale, for affordability, and for innovation around new solutions for, uh, for large size problems. Both the market size discussion and the venture model's requirements that their investments achieve requisite scale raises a question. What are the implications? How does this impact how entrepreneurs on the continent look at expansion and the strategies they seek to achieve their pan-African or global ambitions? And what are the considerations for those looking to expand beyond their home market? Let's explore. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. Let's start our discussion on expansion with a premise, that the economics of the venture investing model compels startups in Africa to expand to new markets. It implies that some of the investments need to be in multiple markets because Africa is very fragmented. That's Keith Davies, the former CFO of Zona, a South African fintech that built agent networks in Zambia, Malawi, and Mozambique. And, and very few of the markets by themselves are large enough to be able to create the sort of, of, of returns required in order to, to kind of become the, the, the big exit story in a particular fund. So it, it, then, it then almost mandates that companies, there, there's a pressure to expand uh, geographically. And this mandate introduces a lot of complexity into the business. From an entrepreneur's perspective, your primary battle is against complexity. And complexity, in very simple terms, in my mind, is a function of two things. It's a function of products and markets. And it's an exponential function rather than a multiplicative function. So if you're in one market with one product, you one raise the power of one. If you're in one market with two products, you one raise the power of two. And then unfortunately, as you, as you add on markets, you actually add a power to the power. So let's say your base complexity is two. Then if you go into another market, you're going to increase that power by another power. So your complexity explodes when you go into new markets. It's a function of the differences between markets and the fragmentation of the continent in general. Recognizing that within Africa, like from one market to the next, they, they are completely different. The tax regimes are different. The, the regulations are different. The cultures are often very different. And things just don't automatically translate from one market to another. This complexity is both highly leverageable and also an existential risk. Some companies are able to, to tame that complexity and, and actually 
create a huge moat around their business because they have been able to tame that complexity and in doing so will have put the systems and processes in place that can manage it. So those businesses are, are I think, very powerful. However, a lot of the other businesses on the way through, they cannot tame that comp complexity. And what may be a very good business in one market ends up collapsing as it tries to go into multiple markets. And, I, and I've seen this time and time again. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm always sort of very nervous for companies when they start looking at moving into, into other markets because I think it's a very dangerous time for any, any business to go into a new market. So with that being said, how should entrepreneurs approach expansion? I think like startups have to be flexible in their core value prop, but align very closely with the status quo of the structures of the countries that they're going to. That's Wiza Javakasi, the head of global business development and strategy at Hover. And sometimes that means that you hire differently in these markets. So in one country, for example, you have like one salesperson and one support person. And maybe in the other country, you've got like 10 support people, five compliance people, and like no salesperson. And I think people struggle to like wrap their heads around that because they want to like take this linear format and scale it across these very different markets. And that just does not work at all. Like I'm speaking from experience, please do not try it. Yeah. Get into every market and like set up the appropriate structures. In spite of the complexity, we are still seeing many startups expanding, both successfully and unsuccessfully. It comes down to the ability to execute. If you raise money on a specific strategy, then you want to make sure they're able to execute on that strategy. Right? That's Tayo Oviosu, CEO of Nigerian fintech Paga. Tayo, much like Keith, believes in taking a discerning and patient approach to expansion. When I talk to entrepreneurs, and this week I had a meeting with somebody who was thinking about expanding to the new market and a much younger company, especially in Nigeria, where a lot of people are like, oh, I see Paga saying they're doing this. Migos doing that. Paystack's doing that. You know, this person's doing that. You know, like, it becomes the pressure of, oh, I should also go to another market. And, and I said, look, you need, to, you need to block all of that out because every new thing you add to your business is yet another, you know, major dimension of complication right, to your daily execution. Again, everybody's slightly different situation, but I think people should, it's not something that people should rush to. Paga is an interesting example. They launched commercially in Nigeria in 2012 and are planning to expand into their next market this year after eight years of operation solely in Nigeria. On one hand, it's a function of the amount of opportunity in Nigeria alone. Paga is a mobile payments company that is focused on solving two problems, digitizing cash and cash transactions and delivering access to financial services to the mass markets in emerging markets. You know, we're going to continue investing very heavily in Nigeria and scaling our business business here. Um, we see a tremendous opportunity. We think we've done the 2%, right? still, still 98% to do here in Nigeria. I think because Nigeria is such a big market that people, you know, we don't have to tell people that we're going anywhere. I think if we just said we're just in Nigeria, I think people would be fine with that. On the other hand, their decision to expand now is a function of the opportunity they see in markets outside of Nigeria. But one thing that's also clear to us when we think about the two problems we're solving and what we built here is that these opportunities in other large countries will not be there five years from now. And if we have the privilege to be able to work in multiple markets, then why not? 
And what gives Paga the privilege, in Tayo's view, to work in multiple markets and execute on their strategy is the strength of the team and what they've built in Nigeria. I think we, with the team we now have in Nigeria, we have the privilege to do it. I don't think we, we could have done it before. You know, I think we now have a strong leadership team that is able to run the business and focus um, a lot more and allow a very few subset of us to help build a new a new market, a new operation. It almost feels like starting again from, from, from you know, at some level. But what's different this time is that we already have a platform. Like we already have the product. We already have everything. And so the starting again is the partnerships and the execution side of it. And so I think that actually gives us an advantage. For Tayo and Paga in particular, their ability to be patient is also in part a function of their investors and the strategy that they bought into. We've never faced the pressure. None of our investors are pushing us to do what we're doing. When I look to bring in investors, I also think about that. Um, because if you as an investor are not excited about the same purpose that I've you know, and me and the team are putting it forward, then I don't want you as my investor because I think we're going to have issues <laughs> down the line. You know, it's not about just the money, right? We have to be aligned around the, the purpose because we may disagree on many things in between, but if we're aligned on purpose and we're aligned on, on that, then at least we'll, we'll figure things out. While Tayo and Paga may not face the pressure from investors, the role expansion plays in fundraising and the path to exit for venture-backed companies can't be overlooked entirely. My name is Victor Basta. I'm um, the founder of Magister Advisors. Magister Advisors is an M&A advisory firm that's worked with several African companies on their growth stage rounds. We've done several of the largest growth equity rounds that have been done on the continent. So it started with Cellulant, which was the largest growth equity round that had actually ever been done in Africa up to that point, which was mid-2018. And then we work with Twiga when they raised money from Goldman Sachs, was Goldman's first ever investment in Kenya. Cloud Factory, which raised $65 million, which has 3,000 people in Nairobi and 3,000 in Nepal. In this line of work, Victor and his team advised growth stage CEOs on the preparatory work needed to position their company to raise larger rounds, a $25 million plus Series C, for example, and ultimately for an exit. And while exits are few and far between in the nascent African tech ecosystem, we can reasonably expect to see more companies in time exiting through M&A or through a sale to a strategic buyer. What does good look like to be attractive to a strategic buyer? And so a couple of points on that. One is that buyers still, in a lot of sectors, they will pay up to, quote, buy Africa. We all know that there's really not such a thing. But for example... In payments, um, there's a huge premium to be able to buy one that delivers Africa multiple markets. Off-grid solar, the same thing. Agriculture, the same thing. Now, there are limits because there's hardly any company that's truly pan-African, and the cost of doing that yeah. at a relatively small scale is, is sometimes prohibitive. So what is good enough? But my point being that if you have $30 million of revenue in one of these markets in Africa... Uh, it becomes more valuable to have 20 in one geography and five and two others than it does to have 28 in one geography and two in another. But that's not to say attractive growth stage companies are merely dipping their toes into new markets. There are issues around managing and you know how profitable geographic expansion is, and we get that question all the time. So, But pilots, if you're a Kenyan-based company, a pilot in Uganda doesn't cut it. 
you kind of need to have a business there. So perhaps exit considerations are behind an East African company, for example, choosing to expand to West Africa, especially given our understanding of how difficult it has been for outside companies to make it in Nigeria. Of course, the holy grail is being able to cover two points of the triangle, you know, east, west, and south. So if you can cover two points of the triangle, strategic value begins to multiply. Again, because whether you're talking about a Total or a PayPal or Square or whatever, yep, you're talking about somebody who wants to be able to say, we did one acquisition, we're going to build around it. But even with this being said, Victor understands the operational risk a young company is making when mapping international expansion. The risk is always you go for a certain kind of profile to be attractive in three years' time to strategic buyer, and you end up screwing up the economics in the business. Or management bandwidth gets overstretched. And so part of the fundraising game is balancing these competing objectives long enough to get across the finish line. There's an equation that somebody taught me years ago, very complicated equation. It's called perception minus reality equals value. Now, the the point about that equation, perception is not spin, but you can amplify your capability, credibility to be pan-African without quite having done it. And there are plenty of examples of African companies that have raised more money than they, quote, deserve to raise at the stage of development because they got on people's radar screens. They were well known. And people buy and pay more for companies that they feel they know. And so a big part of exit preparation is how do you build that kind of engagement with buyers uh, in a scenario where you're just building a relationship rather than you're for sale. So expansion is hard, yet opportunities abound. And for those who can execute, their decision to launch in new markets can go a long way to building a really strong business and one that is attractive to buyers. But it raises a question. Who on the continent has got it right so far? What does it really mean to be a pan-African company? And are there actually any? There's definitely need for a healthy dose of realism about like to what extent you're able to generate revenue in or make progress in, in other markets outside the home base. That's Osaruman again who we heard from in the opener. Some of the entrepreneurs I've come to respect the most are those who are very clear-headed about what the what current conditions look like. That is, they're aware that maybe the amount of hype in the tech ecosystem in Africa has outpaced the activity itself by a bit. This sentiment comes from Osiruman's first-hand experience. I, I currently work at Africa Stalking, and we're in 17, 18 markets. And I can tell you that the home market is still generating a significant portion of revenue. And this is true across many of the companies uh, with which I'm familiar. But let's not confuse pragmatism for pessimism. If entrepreneurs are, are thinking about the markets as systematically as they should, that is identifying the countries where, again, the conditions are right for, for the things that you have to offer. Those may not necessarily be the, the countries that are close to you or where there's um, geographical proximity. Um, so, you know, it, it shouldn't necessarily follow that building a, a Kenyan business, you need to expand to Uganda immediately afterwards. Or building a business in Nigeria, you need to expand to Ghana. But some of the entrepreneurs I've come to respect the most here are taking a more like, first principles approach to the market. And perhaps increasingly, that'll mean expanding outside of Africa. Here's Tayo again. So Mexico is the next market we're launching. We're very driven by what we call our massive transformative purpose, which is that we want to make it simple for a billion people to access and use money. And as we thought about that, we asked ourselves, okay, how do we achieve 
that one billion number. And what became very clear to us is that we're in a business that really requires a scale, right? And that requires being in a large country large in terms of population, large in terms of GDP. And it's worth mentioning that Paga's ability to choose Mexico as its next expansion market is in part due to Tayo's vision for Paga and its mission. Imagine if my story and what we're doing is we said we're building across Africa, we wouldn't have just had this initial conversation we had right now, right, about Mexico <laughs> or any other country. Um, it's an actually easier story for me to tell. Um, and I think I can tell it very credibly that we are going to be the, you know, the PayPal for Africa. I could tell that story very credibly and everybody would buy it. But again, that's not us. It's just not real. So perhaps we ought to see more African startups, if the conditions fit, setting their sights on global expansion and not just limited to expansion across Africa. So I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think about this as um, everybody who starts a, a, a tech business here needs to think about, quote unquote, the continent. Good businesses are good businesses and good founders are good founders. Good capital allocators are good capital allocators. And they will find like what, is, what maximizes value for the business. At the same time, again, perhaps it also serves us well to keep a healthy dose of realism and pragmatism. I also recognize why we, why we are having this conversation. It is, in many cases, structurally challenging for African-founded companies to go thrive elsewhere. Like even, even if we take something as straightforward as access to capital, the world currently has not yet seen Africa as or African markets as lucrative investment vehicles, investment opportunities. And so, you know, would they, would say a fund based in Silicon Valley rather bet on a Latin American founder, um, a Southeast Asian founder or an African founder? I leave that to, to you to decide, like, you know, based on what, what's already happened. As always, my B-Mike Shio and I sat down to discuss our thoughts on this episode, and in particular, the inextricable link between fundraising and expansion. Have a listen. I think premature expansion is um, a massive, vicious cycle, because what happens is you go ask your, whoever you're asking for money, and you say, we're going to be in three countries by X, and you go do that, um, and then you realize that, oh, shit, well, now I've spent all this money trying to make this work. And then I've changed my focus. So I've, I've moved away from focusing you know, on my home market. Uh, maybe competitors have started coming in. Maybe I've just stopped paying attention to key parts of my unit economics or whatever it is. Um, and now I'm running out of money and I need to be able to go and tell the next group of people uh, all the same people about my expansion plans. So I've either got to like double down or reel it all the way back in. And either way, it's just kind of this vicious cycle that happens. So I think that, you know, waiting and then taking your time with, the, with that kind of decision is smart to me. And then I think it's also really important to know your, your, your product and know your market. So some products can in in a lot of markets go deep it's not like you know there's not not that many um which i think we always have to be honest about when we talk about our markets but a lot can and you know you just have to pick the right products that can can do that in the right environments 
so yeah, I, I think I don't think that it's true that Nigeria is the only market you can build something for the market stay there. It's just about what products you're building and, and what exists to, to help that product thrive. What do you think about on the topic of like complexity and, and what Keith was talking about related to what you just said, like the complexity that's introduced by introducing new products versus the complexity that's introduced by expanding to a different market? I, I was just curious what you think about that in terms of like, is it is it fair to say that in all cases, it's maybe like operationally less intensive to introduce a new product in the market, in your home market versus taking the same product outside of the market, especially if you're in like a regulated sector where you have to deal with all of that kind of stuff just to, to get a product um, off the ground in a new market. I think that's fair. My general hypothesis around that from a personal point of view, I don't know if it's right, I don't have enough experience to, to say so, but is as much as possible you want to build out the full stack of your product lines in one market. I think that it then gives you the requisite practice, the requisite muscles and agility to be able to, and also the re requisite stack to be able to expand in ways that make sense. And and I think actually like, like so much else, this this ends up sort of defaulting to a conversation on fundraising, but it really underscores to me just how important patient capital actually is. There's almost like a catch-22 where like you need to, we, we've talked about this before, like pitch the Pan-African narrative, right? In order to win deals. But then once you win deals, like being compelled to expand because you pitch this Pan-African narrative is sort of antithetical to like what ought to happen from an operational perspective. Yeah, it's a thing that, happens to even to me often you know like it's maybe nine out of ten and ten out of ten really conversations that you'll have with a potential funder will be the question of you know is this something that scales across the continent and you know for better or for worse it's yet um to be known i'm always very honest about my answer to that question which is i'm building out a full stack in one market and then I take it to other markets if it makes sense. And people don't really want to hear that. Yeah. I mean, do you think that you lose interest? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And I, I say that with a fair amount of evidence of <laughs> emails and uh, no's. You know? Yeah. A lot of people say no to you. <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and to be honest, and it comes back to what you said. I, I hope what it does do is um, align myself with the right partners who mm -hmm. are you know, a little bit more nuanced in their understanding of the markets and patience and, and, you know, trust or respect realism. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like, I don't know, there's a, there's a whole hype world of, of things that I'm generally bad at anyways. So. What, did, what did you think about Victor saying like the perception minus reality is what like you like that formula that he talked about i mean and his his perspective was really interesting as well. um, i loved it i i really um those those were you know strong learnings for me in the in the episode the value of perception and you know you, you could kind of switch out perception for potential in that equation because i think that's more what it was speaking to but you know inside of that potential is a, is a lot of perception and a lot of storytelling Maybe this is where we sort of tease future episodes, but 
like the whole sort of valuation and pathway to exit topic is definitely something that we we're going to explore more right and then the other thing on narrative is like we we didn't get into in this episode the decisions behind why mexico for paga but like one of the things that was the most interesting is talking about tayo talking about how he positioned paga to not just be a pan-african fintech but you know a global fintech trying to solve emerging market problems and how that narrative sort of uh, maybe was a harder story to sell, but then is also what enables them to make the decision to go to Mexico versus, you know, Kenya, for example. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Again, like that's that's the thing that rings true for me, right? It's, it's just having a comfortable story that works with you, your product, your markets, and then communicating that as clearly, as optimistically as possible while grounded in a in a strong sense of realism so that the partners that you're bringing along the journey um, know what they're getting into and you don't kill yourself trying to do something you don't even really believe in and at the expense of the thing you do really believe in. And then hopefully after a lot of no's, eventually you find somebody who buys what you're selling. That's the game. Thanks as always for listening to this episode of The Flip. As we just mentioned, our next two episodes will expand on this topic a bit further. Next week, we'll hear from Paga again, alongside others, on the connection and relationship between African startups and non-Western markets outside of the continent. And the following week, we'll explore valuations and exits. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get those episodes straight to your phone. You can also join the newsletter for updates, as well as a weekly essay sent every Sunday on our website, theflip.africa. And follow us on social media at theflipafrica. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.